Over the years, many of us have heard these words. I'm a changed woman. Or I'm a changed man. And sometimes when we hear this, we wonder if it will last. And sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. So what are some of the indicators that a change will last? Well, one of the key indicators is finances. Does our encounter with God change our attitude to and our practice with money? In the positive, think of Barnabas, who in the book of Acts we read, he sold his land and then brought it and laid it at the apostles' feet. He donated it, he gifted it to the fledgling church. It's in the positive. In the negative, have a look at this cartoon. It's a full immersion baptism. And the person has been baptised, but there's one part of him that he won't give to God. And his hand is up and his wallet is out. And he's saying, everything I give to you, O Lord, except my money. I wonder if the change will be lasting in that person's life. You see, genuine repentance impacts all of our lives, not just our church going, but our everyday life, from our relationships, our words, our actions, and what we do with our money. And today we're going to see just this. Finally, after years of Jeremiah being ignored, the king and the people of Jerusalem repent. And not only do they turn back to God, but it costs them. It costs them quite a bit of money. But they still decide that they want to repent. And all bodes well. But will it last? And so we pick up Jeremiah's story in chapter 34. And what happens is Jeremiah is receiving a word for the king and the wealthy in Jerusalem. Fortunately, though, we're given the background before we're given the word. And so what's the background of this word that Jeremiah is about to receive? Chapter 34 from verse 8. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people in Jerusalem to proclaim freedom for the slaves. Everyone was to free his Hebrew slaves, both male and female. No one was to hold a fellow Jew in bondage. This is great news, isn't it? Especially if you're a slave. Now, a word about slaves in the Bible. If anyone got themselves into financial strife in biblical days, there was no bankruptcy option. If family or friends could not bail you out of debt, your only real option was to sell yourself as a slave. You would either go to the person who you owned money to and say, you know, I give myself to you as a slave and the debt would be cancelled, or you'd sell yourself to someone else and money would change hands. However, God's word was clear that Jewish slaves were not slaves for life. They had to be released after six years. Not only had they, had they to be released in the seventh year, but the slave owner had to give them some money and other resources to help them get back on their feet. However, This law of God cost the slave owner. I mean, why set a perfectly good asset free when you have to turn around and buy another one? A modern day example would be something like this. Think of a small business with, say, five cars as part of their fleet. And the owner's policy was this. Once a brand new car had reached 20,000 Ks, he was to give it away. 
Now, does this make financial sense? Well, for two reasons, no. First of all, after 20,000 Ks, the car has plenty of life left in it. Why not keep it for another five, ten years? And secondly, give it away? No, you'd sell it, surely. But this is what God was asking the slave owners to do with their slaves. After six years, those slaves had plenty of working life left in them. Give them away? No, no, just sell them. Pick up another slave. So financially, this was not a good idea for the wealthy. It was a very merciful law, but it wasn't prudent financially. And what had happened is the wealthy had been ignoring this law for years, and they had been keeping their Jewish slaves for well over six years. So now... They pledged to God to set their Hebrew slaves free. But why this change of heart? Why are these wealthy folk giving up their slaves? They were reluctant before. What's different? Well, at least two reasons. One, Jeremiah has been on to them about returning to God's word and obeying it for years, and they've ignored him. So it's been in their mind. But secondly... They're in the middle of a siege. Jerusalem is surrounded by Babylonians. Jeremiah had said, if you don't turn back to God and his ways, God will send the Babylonians who will take out the city. And now they're at the gate. And the king and the wealthy had tried all their political options. They'd tried all their military options and nothing was working. And they only had one option left, scraping the bottom of the barrel. The only thing they could think of was maybe we should try this repentance thing a go. Because it's better to be alive without money in the bank than to have a Babylonian chasing you around the streets of Jerusalem with a big sword. So, this is what we read in verse 10. So all the officials and the people who entered into this covenant agreed that they would free their male and female slaves and no longer hold them in bondage. They agreed and set them free. Notice the word covenant again is very crucial to this passage. God's people had entered into a covenant, a solemn agreement with God to free their slaves. This was an act of repentance. This was to show that they wanted to be obedient to God's word. And it's worth looking at the process of how they made this covenant. How did you make a covenant in biblical days? Verse 19, Jeremiah 34, 19. The leaders of Judah and Jerusalem the court officials and the priests and all the people of the land who walked between the pieces of the calf. Now, what on earth is that about? If it was a modern-day agreement, we would cross out the walking between the pieces of the calf and we would replace that with signed a legal document. And this is how it worked. And this gets a little bit bizarre and a little bit gory. I think I'd better make this a bit of an R13 sort of qualifier here. So if you're under 13, you might want to block your ears. This is how you made a covenant in biblical days. Often it was between a strong king and a lesser king or kingdoms, between a strong tribe and a lesser tribe or tribes. And once they agreed the terms of the covenant, they then had a ceremony. And the ceremony involved getting one or more animals and killing them, and cutting them in half, uh, separating the two halves. So you made like a pathway. So you had half a dead calf there and half a dead calf here. You might have half a dozen. 
And then what happened is the lesser tribe, representatives of the lesser tribe or the lesser of the kingdom, would walk between the two halves of the calf and say, may this happen to us if we do not obey the covenant. I would rather sign an ink than to go through that process. You can read about this in Genesis 15 because that's how God made the covenant with Abraham. A whole series of animals and there was this walking through. And so what happened was the king's representatives, the officials, the wealthy, they did the ceremony in the temple. And this is the covenant that they made. So, as I said, all bodes well until we get to verse 11. But afterwards, they changed their minds. They took back the slaves they had freed and enslaved them again. I'm feeling very nervous for the people in Jerusalem. This is a bit of a slap in the face to God, isn't it, after the covenant? What will God do next? They had just said to God in the temple, let us be ripped apart, just like these animals, if we break our covenant. And then something changed, and they brought their slaves back. So what changed? This is what changed. The pharaoh in the south with his Egyptian army marched out of Egypt to the borders of Israel. And there at the borders of Israel, he challenged the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. Now Nebuchadnezzar had taken out most of Israel and it was just Jerusalem really that was left and he had laid siege. So the king of Nebuchadnezzar decided, I need to face the pharaoh and his army. That's the greatest threat. So he withdrew all of his army from around Jerusalem. And they marched south to the border and engaged in a battle. And so one day, the guards on the walls woke up and looked out over the city of Jerusalem, and all of the Babylonian army had gone. They sent out scouts. Nothing. The city was free. And the slave owners started to think, well, I miss my slaves. And there's no threat of the Babylonian chasing me around, soldier chasing me around with a sharp sword. I think I want my slaves back. And because slaves have no resources, and wealthy people have lots of resources, and because nobody sticks up for slaves, and wealthy people have influence, they gathered all their slaves that they had set free and forced them back into servitude. This, then, is the background behind why Jeremiah receives this word. What do you think God's going to do to these people? Pick this up in verse 12. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. This is what the Lord your God of Israel says. I made a covenant with your forefathers when I brought them out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I said, every seventh year, each of you must free my fellow Hebrew who has sold himself to you. And after he has served you for six years, you must let him go free. So God begins this word for the king and for the slave owners. He begins it by, by reminding them of the major covenant, one of the big five covenants that he made with his people. And the symbol of that covenant with Moses and God's people is the law. And you know, the first laws that were given were the Ten Commandments. And do you know what the second set of laws were? The second set of laws were, 
treat your slaves kindly. Now that, that's very important order. The Ten Commandments, treat your slaves kindly. And then all came out the other laws, all the laws about how they were to worship and offer sacrifices, all the laws about uh, civil laws, about how to treat each other when there's been you know, um, thefts and manslaughter and all that. But notice the priority. The Ten Commandments, treat your slaves kindly. By prioritizing that, slaves as the second component of God's law, God was reminding the Israelites that they were once slaves and that God was kind to them. So they needed to be kind to their slaves. And here in this word, God reminds them of this law. Then we have uh, verses 14 and 15. Recently you repented and did what is right in my sight. Each of you proclaimed freedom to his countrymen. You even made a covenant before me in the house that bears my name. So God said, well, beforehand, you and your forefathers never obeyed this law, but finally you've done the right thing. And I'm pleased that you've done the right thing. You've repented and you set your slaves free, and I was thrilled that you did it. However, verse 16, but now you have turned around and profaned my name. Each of you has taken back the male and female slaves you have set free to go where they wished. You have forced them to become your slaves again. And so like an expert legal prosecution lawyer, God has developed his case against his people. It's a case that is watertight, unanswerable, and without defense. And now God moves from prosecution lawyer to judge. Verse 17, and this is what's going to happen. I mean, oh, what is God going to do with this terrible situation? Verse 17, therefore, this is what the Lord says. You have not obeyed me. You have not proclaimed freedom for your fellow countrymen. So I now proclaim freedom for you, declares the Lord. Freedom to fall by the sword, plague and famine. I will make you abhorrent to all the kingdoms of the earth. God is going to follow through with the agreement they made. They had walked through the dead carcass, the dead calf, and said, let this happen to us if we break our word. And God is now saying, let it be as you have said. Verse 18. The men who have violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will treat like the calf they cut in two, and then walked between its pieces. The leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the court officials, the priests, and all the people of the land who walked between the pieces of the calf, I will hand over to their enemies who seek their lives. Their dead bodies will become food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. Pretty severe judgment, isn't it? No wriggle room whatsoever. And before we feel that they've got a bit of a tough deal, uh, remember that these are the same people that allowed child sacrifice in their midst. Jeremiah has already condemned them and told them to stop. They were either doing it themselves or being complicit in allowing it to happen. And then to finish God's judgment, we have verse 21 and following. God finishes by saying, I will hand Jedekiah, king of Judah, and his officials over to the enemies who seek their lives to the army of the king of Babylon which has withdrawn from you. 
I am going to give the order decrees the Lord and I will bring them back to the city. You see, it was God's plan to take Babylonian soldiers and the army away from Jerusalem to test, to test the repentance. Finishing off, God says, they will fight against it, take it and burn it down, and I will lay waste to the towns of Judah so no one can live there. God had tested his people and their repentance had not lasted. When allowed to, when given freedom, it exposed their true motives, self-interest and greed. And so God will bring the Babylonians to make the defeat final. This is such a Jeremiah story, isn't it? I was thinking from Jeremiah's point of view, yes, after all these years of preaching repentance, finally the king in Jerusalem are listening. And there must have been a period of time when he was very happy. But then it all came crumbling down as God's people had not truly repented. Now there's a whole bunch of implications for us. Too many to look at this morning, so just three. Three implications for us. First, do not underestimate the impact of money on our faith. Jesus made it clear when he said in Luke 16, verse 3, No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And we see this very clearly in today's story. The slave owners had prioritized money before all else and learned to their dismise that you can't serve both God and money. Now, the Bible has much to say about money. But at its core, the Bible tells us that money is a tool that helps us honor God and helps us bless others. Money is a tool that helps us to honor God and bless others. And of course, we do need money to look after our own selves, but our priority is to honor God. However, like the slave owners, money can often become a tool for us to honor ourselves and bless ourselves with abundance. And we have to be careful. There are times in our life when we've been very obedient And I pray that everyone here has with God worked out what they will do with their money. But money is such a temptation that we can slip and allow all sorts of attitudes and the worldly values to creep in. So today we are reminded to be careful of the impact of money and wealth on our faith. Otherwise we may end up with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were listening when Jesus said you cannot serve both God and money. In the very next verse, we read the Pharisees who loved money heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus. Fancy that, sneering at Jesus. And he said to them, God knows your hearts. What is valued among men is detestable in God's sight. That's the first take home for today. Second take home is God's heart for the poor and the marginalized. All through the Bible, we see God choose, bless, and lift up the weak over the strong, the poor over the rich, the discarded over the influential. We see this in God's law, where God prioritizes kindness to slaves. So we have the big ten, and then we have be kind to slaves, and then we have all the other laws. This whole 
priority of the poor and the marginalized is enshrined in God's law and in the example of Jesus. You know, Jesus was always getting in trouble by the pillars of society because he chose to hang out with the dregs of society. And we see this in Luke, Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, oh, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus had a heart for the poor and the marginalized, and they loved to spend time with Jesus and listen to him. And that's a reminder for us too, that we need to prioritize in our lives a response to the marginalized and to the poor. God has blessed us in in many areas and most, if not all of us, would not consider ourselves on the edge of society, either because of money problems or health or circumstances or education. But there's a challenge for us individually and as a church not to become a holy huddle, but to broaden our generosity for those that do not match our own background circumstances. Christ got into trouble with the pillars of society, maybe people like you and I, because he hung out with the dregs of society. So that's the second take home for today that we see wonderfully applied as God was angered by the treatment of the slaves and came to their defence. And thirdly and finally, the third take home for today is that covenants are sealed in blood. As I said before, I much prefer our legal documents which are signed in ink, but that's not how it was in Bible days. Blood seals the deal. As I mentioned before, in Genesis 15, we see Abraham and his covenant being sealed with the same process with the animals split in two and that movement between them. And we've seen today how God's people entered into another similar covenant and it all involved blood. It all involves saying, if I break this covenant, then what has happened to cause this blood must happen to me. And we rejoice that we are under the fifth and final covenant in the Bible, the covenant that Jesus set up on the night that he was betrayed, Luke twenty-two twenty. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new blood in my covenant, which is poured out for you. And of course, the next day, Good Friday on the cross, he shed his blood. And there's all sorts of different ways of looking about what this means. And the one way of looking at Jesus' sacrifice is like the Passover lamb. And Jesus is our Passover lamb, and his blood was shed for us and protected us. But another way of looking at the atonement is the covenant. And where we have walked through two halves of a lamb and said, let this happen to me if I break the covenant. Because we are human, because we are frail, we break that covenant. And we should be punished. But Jesus comes alongside and says, I am the lamb of God. And the punishment you deserve, I take upon me. And that's the punishment that Jesus took on the cross for us. We can never fulfill this this covenant, but only as we look to Jesus does he make this covenant real in us. And that blood spilt and that body broken that we remember in a solemn but joyful way in every communion service is a symbol of us being welcomed into this new covenant. 
It's a symbol of our freedom that this new covenant brings. A freedom to be forgiven and cleansed, healed and restored by the blood of Jesus. A freedom to call the living God our heavenly Father by the blood of Jesus. Freedom to follow Christ with joy because of the blood he shed. And freedom to be filled and transformed by the wonderful Holy Spirit who abides in us. It is wonderful to live under the new covenant signed and sealed by the blood of Jesus. Let's pray.